they sent home to their sweet elderly mother. Abraham said first, I built a big house for our mother. Moshe said, well, I sent her a Mercedes with a driver. And David, the youngest, said, you remember how our mother enjoys reading the Bible? And she can't see that well anymore, so I found the most remarkable parent who has been taught by the greatest rabbis for 12 years, scripture. And he can recite chapter and verse. Soon after, they got a letter from their mom, a thank you note. Abraham, the house you built is so huge. I live only in one room, and I have to clean the whole house. Moshe, I'm too old to travel. I stay home all the time. So I rarely use the Mercedes, and the driver's a pain in the tuchus. And David, the chicken was delicious. <laughs> anyway, it's nothing to do with anything, but glad you could laugh. Isn't it amazing how we are able to see so clearly the blind spots in other people that we know? And we don't really see them quite as clearly in our own lives. And that's clearly why Jesus told us to take the large beam out of your own eye before you talk to somebody about the splinter in theirs. There's likely many of those hearing Paul's message that we saw last week completely agreed with his assessment of pagan man. We saw last week that even pagan man who has never heard of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, Jesus, or anything, is still without an excuse. Because they have the light of God's power demonstrated in creation. They have that internal witness and conscience. But they chose to suppress the truth, and that is why they failed to worship the one true God. Then God gives them over to do the things that are in their heart to do that lead to awful wickedness, things that are really unthinkable. But the very moral and religious person listening to that letter being read, I'm sure would have not seen themselves as the same way as the pagan man. After all, there are countless people who are very devout in their particular church. They live by standards taught from the Bible. They do the things that are morally right and proper. They follow proper religious requirements of their denomination, and therefore, they would see themselves in a different light than the pagan man. But Paul continues to build his case about God's righteousness and that people, all people, pagan man, religious man, are all short on righteousness and therefore not acceptable to God. So this chapter proves that the moral, kind, generous, selfless person is still guilty and condemned before a holy God. The devout religious Jewish person of Paul's day was the focus of, of this chapter, but really it applies to all devout religious people of every era. The problem is such people often believe that they are in a better standing with God because of all the things they do and don't do. The danger is a failure to see with clarity that no one does enough righteous acts that would ever make them acceptable to a perfectly holy God. Everyone stands guilty, everyone is condemned before God because no one can live up to his high standards of righteousness. It is often easier for those who have hit rock, rock bottom and made a mess of their lives to realize they are in sinners, they are sinners in need of a great savior than it is for those who are very religious and devoted in their denomination and their belief in God. But such thinking is faulty. There is a failure to understand the biblical truths as related to divine judgment. The pagan person, the devoted religious person, are still both sinners. 
One may be more pleasing to fellow man than the other, but both fall short of the righteousness that can make them acceptable to God. So we're going to look at God's perspective on divine judgment. So we see there's an absolute guarantee that judgment is coming. Paul says, talking to the religious Jewish person, Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. That's the blind spots I was talking about. Just like the pagan society who suppresses the truth and therefore has no excuse before holy God, the same is true with the very religious person as well. They are without excuse. In other words, you know right from wrong. Your conscience, as well as written scripture, the law of Moses, it reveals behavior that is condemned by God. So such a moral person, though, often feels free to judge the wickedness they see being acted out in others while failing to see their own guilt in doing the same thing. Applying this to all religious people who feel rather confident that their behavior is proper and superior to lawless sinners, Paul wants them to realize they have a blindness and to their own faults. This was the whole issue that Jesus confronted when he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day in Matthew chapter 5. They did all the right things on the outside, yet their hearts failed to live up to the standards of the law. Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount the intent of the law. And just because you don't physically kill a person, the fact is if you're angry and have hatred, from God's perspective, you have already murdered in your heart. And Jesus also talked about sexual sin by condemning all who have ever had any kind of sexual fantasy about anybody. Just because you didn't carry it out in reality, you're still guilty from the law's perspective on that subject. So this is the hypocrisy that deceives the hearts of even religious people who are able to rationalize their behavior even when it is contrary to scripture. Well, compared to everybody else, it's not that bad. God is able to look straight into the heart of every person, and he alone knows all the muck and the mire and the grossness and the wickedness and the hidden thoughts that no one else knows. Verse 2 says, And we know that judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God has the ability to see all, and he will judge according to truth. Therefore, he will judge the self-righteous moral person based on the facts of the truths about them, even though they are truths that are often hidden from other people. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Since a pagan person will not escape judgment, are you really so self-deceived that you think God will just overlook your indiscretions because you really are basically morally upright? No one trusting in their own attempts to live a moral life will escape the judgment of God. The standard isn't other people who are worse than you. The standard is perfect obedience to the moral law of God. Nobody can do that. Because God knows everything about us, it is foolish to delude ourselves and to think that we are good enough, as if God doesn't know your thoughts. Reality is we can't even remember all the evil we've done. I mean, we don't remember what we did that was a lie and disrespectful and disobedient when we were two and four and 13 and whatever. 
don't even remember. And God, he does. He remembers. He hasn't forgotten any of it. A holy God cannot excuse our sins because they aren't as bad as somebody else's. His holy standards never change. Verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is so loving and so patient and so kind with mankind. He provides air for us to breathe, food to eat, shelter from the elements. Just because he doesn't strike us all down dead the moment we've sinned does not mean he's never going to deal with sin. Theologians call his goodness and kindness to humanity common grace. The fact that you're well enough to be here, that you have eyes so you could drive here today, that you have a mind so you can reason and even think to try to answer questions, that you had food before you came and will have it when you leave, all of this is God's common grace in your life. God's kindness has been seen by the Jewish people Paul was addressing, and they are his chosen people. They were given the law to them, and they had the prophets sent to them. They had the kings. They had the messages. They had the wisdom from Proverbs that you read, the comfort from the Psalms that you read. All of that they had for thousands of years. And God, in his tolerance and his patience, has restrained judgment. The fact that Jewish people still exist reveals God's kindness and patience. God is not quick to judge wrongs done. We like him to be quick with other people, but not with us, right? I mean, doing something. You only have to read through the Old Testament to realize his amazing patience with people. And it becomes easy, though, to think God should be kind. Well, actually, to morally upright or to religious or to those, in this case, who are his chosen covenant people. And sadly, this became the thinking of the moral man so that everyone... They are guilty of despising, really, the patience and kindness of God in their attitude. Everyone born deserves God's judgment because we all violate his laws. All have lied. And as I said, we could have been struck dead at that moment, as God did with Ananias and Sapphira at the start of the church. Aren't we glad that isn't the norm? (laughs) But if we do not repent of our sin, and if we think that God is unfair in his judgment of mankind then we really are joining other people who are despising the goodness of God. The fact that you have lived as long as you live, the fact that you have the opportunity to be in a place where you can study God's word, all of this should lead you to turn from your sin and run to Christ for forgiveness. Those who fail to repent often misunderstand the goodness of God to mean, as I said, there is no punishment for sin. Somehow nice people... Morally upright people will not be in the same place of judgment. And so Paul reasons that instead of their having a false assurance, what needs to be recognized is God's kindness is there, not so that you think you're not going to be judged, it's so to cause you to want to run to him. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That is quite a statement. Storing up wrath wrath, for the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The day of judgment will come, that is guaranteed by God. When a person hardens their heart to truth, their ultimate destiny is to be separated from God forever and pay a debt of sin they can never pay. 
And though people like to joke about being with all their buddies in the afterlife, or Hollywood makes movies about departed loved ones coming back to help in this life, it's all wishful thinking. It's all make-believe. Throughout, um, as a excuse me. Yes, the person who continues to reject the mercy of God, in reality, they don't even realize they're storing up wrath day by day. Every day that a person rejects Jesus and his goodness to them, they pile up more and more of God's wrath until the great white throne judgment of God will come one day in the future. And his wrath will, wrath will burst upon them. I couldn't help but thinking about all the nightmare in Colorado with all of these waters just flooding and sweeping people away. That is how it will be with the wrath of God. It's hard to imagine some type of large, empty canyon like the Grand Canyon that's being used to pile up more and more of God's wrath over our sin and rebellion towards him. Those with wishful thinking try to ease their fears by saying God will overlook their small sins because they really try to do the right thing. Others want nothing to do with a God who has allowed suffering of children and injustice of the innocent in this world. But there is a failure in all of this to recognize that all people are born into sin. All have rebelled against God by simply living life as they want to live. There is a failure to recognize the goodness of God and to give him thanks and praise, which should lead really people to repent. This is the message of the gospel. All have failed to obey God's holy standards. All are guilty, whether they are pagan or very devout in their particular beliefs. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Whether you can jump 10 feet or you can jump 100 feet, you're still falling short, short of the ocean. You know, you cannot get across. And that is how it is with our need for righteousness. We don't have enough. So the question really comes, has, have you turned from your sins that you are aware of in your life and put your faith in Christ to be forgiven? If not, then the reality is you're adding drops into that large canyon which will one day burst in judgment. How scary to think that people actually are storing up wrath for the great white throne judgment. Well, that brings us to the basics, the basis for judgment. Who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Throughout all of the scriptures, we read that God judges mankind on the basis of deeds. This is not a contradiction to the truth that salvation is by grace alone. It is not dependent on our works that we earn salvation. It's taught throughout, well, this whole book is about that. What Paul's referring to here in chapter 2 of Romans is judgment. He's not talking about salvation. No one is saved by their works. They are only judged by their works. That's because our works reveal our character. And they also indicate if we are someone who has turned from our sins, or are we someone still living lost in our sins. Paul doesn't start teaching on the righteousness of Christ and how we can have salvation until chapter 3. 
But in Romans 2, he is simply trying to establish that someday mankind will all stand before God, and God will see by their works if they were true believers or unbelievers. Those who have turned from their sins and trusted Christ and his death alone for their salvation have been given his righteousness. There is a distinct change in their life then, and deeds of righteousness flow out, as verse 7 indicates. But the problem is that there is no one who is good. There is no one who seeks after God. We see this next week in chapter 3. If you could go to heaven based on the good things that you do, you would have to have 100% perfection all of the time. Everyone who is not perfect has only one other way to come, and that is on the merits of Christ and him alone and his perfect righteousness, which he gives to sinners who ask. Those who have never been changed from their heart of sin have deeds that flow out, revealing an unrighteous life. So instead of glorifying God, normally people are just pretty much self-absorbed and disobedient to God. Even if you do good things that you think are righteous, there are the issue of why do you do those things. God sees what and why we do what we do. And the reality is that we deceive our own hearts in order to convince ourselves that we are acceptable to God because of the things we do. So in verses 9 through 11, the truth of Scripture tells us there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. That's pretty much everybody. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Again, Scripture makes clear that every person will experience judgment from God based on their deeds. The religious Jewish person, the moral uh, religious person of today, though people may be impressed with their life, God looks inside and sees the heart and the motives. The pagan or the religious will get exactly what they deserve. Why? Because with God, there's no partiality. It literally means to receive face. God does not receive anyone's face. He's not influenced by who the person is who's standing before him in judgment. That's why the Roman and Greek uh, picture of justice was always a woman blindfolded. So she could not see the person who was being judged and only hear the facts. God's judgment of people will not be swayed by what church they were confirmed in, or by their class in society, or whether they were devoutly religious under the Christian umbrella, wealthy or poor, troubled or easy life. The criteria for judgment will be someone's works. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Even though for centuries the Gentiles of this world did not have the scriptures, they still sinned, and God will judge them based on the light that they had. The Jewish people were blessed with the scriptures to know God's word in his mind, and they still couldn't follow his law. They still sinned, and God will judge them in light of his word. Whether a person lives in a remote village without any knowledge of the Bible, or they grow up being taught the truths of Scripture from childhood. God holds both responsible for what they know, and their judgment will be in proportion to their knowledge. Really, the, the Scriptures teach in Luke 12 and in Matthew 11 that there are degrees of punishment. No one will have an excuse. All will be judged. But those who have had more light will have a greater degree of punishment. For all of us here studying the book 
this book in particular, this is the mind of God. You want to know what he thinks? This is what he thinks. And should we fail to embrace this message of salvation so clearly taught that it is by faith alone in Christ, then we are in a very dangerous place, really. Refusal to come to Christ his way. He has told us the way he's told us to come. Then you've heard this truth and you've ignored it. And there will be a greater degree of punishment. Why? For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Sadly, the religious Jew that Paul was speaking to thought that they were exempt from a place of judgment because they had the law, and the Gentiles didn't. But God has destroyed this argument because they didn't obey the law, they couldn't keep the law. No one has loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. That's just one, one law. Every person is responsible to live up to the light they have been given. And those with more light are condemned before God. They are not justified because they've been attempting to do as the best they could with his law. Verses 14 and 15. What about all the people who did not have the written law of God? The truth is, God, as we have seen, made it possible for everyone to have a sense of right or wrong in their own conscience. That is still why people are able to do things that are right. They know wrong. They know they should reach out to those who are poor and struggling. They know they should have integrity and not lie. They know those things. It's internal inside. That's the witness. They have a moral code that they live by. And maybe it's because of parents or grandparents who have taught them right from wrong. But whether a person obeys the written law of God in the Bible because they know it, or they obey their own conscience that tells them what's good and what's bad, both still violate their own conscience and their own moral laws that they're aware of. This is why people feel guilty, because we are. This is the point of Paul's judge argument. Judgment from God will come to all people based on their deeds. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So even if you think that you've lived a generous kind, giving, self-sacrificing life. And people have indeed been blessed by your kindness and your good works. You will still stand before God one day and he will examine you where you failed, where your motives were improper. And he will judge the deeds that no one saw that were in your thoughts and your mind. All the words that you and I have ever said or failed to say but thought I mean, it's great when you don't say the things you shouldn't say, but if you're still thinking it, he knows. It's a problem. So there won't be anyone who's arguing with God at this point in judgment. Judgment is the future for all who think that they are acceptable to God to go to heaven because they have lived a good, upstanding life. No one can be right with God because of their attempts to keep the law or their attempts to obey their own conscience. God has made a better way. God has made the only way to have forgiveness of our sins, and that is through the work of Jesus Christ. I urge you, if you've never trusted him, to call on him today. Turn from the sins you're aware of and trust that his death on the cross was for your sins. And trust him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
he is the only way. And he made a way possible for us. Now, he closes out this last section at really focusing in on the uh, false confidences that Jewish people have. <coughs> and we will rush through this. So the Jewish audience that Paul was trying to convince had a spiritual need, had that misplaced confidence, um, thinking that they were good enough to get to heaven. So Paul takes the next section to kind of destroy their thinking on that as well. The Jewish people had the law of Moses, so absolutely true. Those who are physical descendants of Abraham are the Jewish people. They are the covenant people of God. They were proud of their unique relationship with God. They were privileged. They had been set apart from the rest of the world as a people. He relied upon the law and he boasted in God. Verse 18 goes on to say that they knew of the things God approved of. They had instruction from the law. They had been instructed in the scriptures. They were taught by their rabbis. They went to synagogue. It was the entire way of life. It was how you ate. It was how you slept. It was how you had children. It was everything. It's not unlike people today who are very proud of their particular denomination, whether it's Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, whatever. They can also claim that they know much of the Bible and have been in religious schools all of their life. But both the religious Jewish person of Paul's day and the religious professor of Christianity today have the same problem. What creeps in? It's called pride. They believe they are superior, superior to others in the knowledge that they have. And such is the mindset that brought about another false confidence, the Jewish people's attitude toward Gentiles. Having an attitude of pride always brings you to the next thing, uh, where they actually confuse their role as being a light to the Gentiles. They were to <coughs> be a light to the world, a guide to the blind, with all of this knowledge they had been privileged to receive about God. They thought actually that they were the reliable guide to the Gentiles, Gentiles who were clueless about the law. Now, it is true that they were to be a light in this world, but when pride comes in, and religious pride comes in, it is followed, obviously, by a whole lot of wrong thinking about self. It's like religious moral people of our day who trust in their religious association instead of seeing their sin and the need for personal salvation. Paul says in verse 24, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? The age-old problem of practicing what you preach. Do you steal? If you commit adultery, if you claim to abhor idols, yet you are guilty of these transgressions. So however stealing was going on, whether it was from their parents or uh, people at work, and there certainly was a great deal of divorce going on so they could have legalized adultery. That was a common practice going on in that day. And the robbing of temples, however that was going on, that was what Paul addresses they were guilty of. So when we compare what the pagan man is guilty of, to the Jewish person of Paul's religious uh, day that was very religious, we see both were guilty of all kinds of sins, sexual, stealing, whatever. One can have a greater knowledge of the right thing to do. That doesn't mean they, the same outcome, that they're not going to do it then. And we have a way, don't we, of rationalizing what we do so it's not exactly the same as what other people do because we have a reason to do it. That's justified. <laughs> So, you dishonor God, and even worse, in verse 24, the impact of those who know the truth and still dishonor God actually causes God's name to be blasphemed among 
the Gentiles. So instead of Gentiles being able to be blessed by seeing, oh, this is how people who obey the God of creation, the law, this is how they act, this is how they treat their spouse, this is how they do in their ethics and business. When it's just as perverse as them, God's name is blasphemed. We all know people who want nothing to do with God because of individuals or churches that they were associated with who were complete guilty of hypocrisy to such a degree that we want nothing to do with the God of the Bible or this particular church. God's name is blasphemy. It was true back then. It's true today. But the critical thing that they placed, that they did, was they placed their confidence not only in their relationship with God and having the law and supposedly being the ones with all the knowledge, uh, they had this important issue of being circumcised. And so he addresses then the right of circumcision. This was commanded by God to Abraham and all of his descendants. It was a symbol of obedience, a physical cutting away that was to be a picture of wanting all of his followers in Israel to cut away sin from their life. You know, the scriptures talk in Exodus about the uncircumcised lips. Jeremiah talks about uncircumcised hearts or ears. Countless places God speaks of your uncircumcised hearts. God was calling the nation of Israel to cut off sin from their life and live dedicated to him. It is from the male organ that man passes on the sin nature to his children. And God wanted a continual visual reminder to his covenant people. And so he commanded that circumcision be done with the idea that they would cut away sin from their own hearts and that God wanted obedience. It becomes obviously obvious that Paul is making the point, you can have surgery on your body, you can be circumcised, but that doesn't do anything about what's going on in your heart. There can be outward conformity to all the ritual rites and ceremonies that are to be done with nothing inside going on. The symbol is meaningless if those who are circumcised don't care about obedience. Many people today have the same attitude about their particular denomination. They were baptized, they've taken communion, they've been confirmed, they, they feel pretty good about all the things you're supposed to do to be right with God. All of these things are good. They are all symbols to reflect a change that's to take place in our hearts. Rituals and ceremonies don't make anybody righteous. Nor did circumcision make a Jewish, Jewish person righteous. Paul concludes his argument at the end of this chapter, explaining to his Jewish audience, only having an outward sign without an inward faith of obedience means nothing. The true Jew has had surgery on their heart. Paul isn't saying every believer is a Jew, in Jesus is a Jew, but rather every true Jew is one who has an inward reality. Otherwise, they're just like the Gentiles around them. The important question really is, who is a true Christian? That's really the most important thing. Someone who has turned in, uh, trusted in Christ rather for salvation, whose heart has been transformed. Religious ceremonies have no power to save. Symbols don't save us. They only point to the picture of Christ. When we take communion, we're pointed back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he is the only way for us to be forgiven our sins. Father, I thank you for your word, and I know that as we study Romans and Paul is building the case that you are righteous and no people are righteous. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to never be deceived to think that we have a merit that 
could make us earn being okay with you. Lord, I pray that you will give us an understanding of your word, that we would come humbly, broken, hating our sin, and run to you to the kindness that you've made through the death of your Son on the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen.